If you have your Bibles, you might turn with me to Psalm 44, where you can read along in your order of worship this morning as we turn our attention to this um, congregational lament. It's really what Psalm 44 is. It's the corporate uh, people of Israel expressing their own confusion, their own struggle uh, before the Lord this morning. And so you'll notice as we read this uh, text together, there's, there's a bit of a shift in tone after the first eight verses, which are uh, almost a hymn of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Uh, a stark shift happens in verse 9, where they begin to uh, reflect upon the fact that who the Lord has been is not who the Lord is presently acting like or doesn't seem to be uh, in the text. And uh, there's some accusations that come through in this text. And it, it might actually surprise some of you if you begin to just pause for a second and say, isn't this amazing? The Lord gives us this as an example of how we can pray to him. And then just pause and just take that in for a second, especially as we read it. The Lord gives you these words as, as a faithful prayer for how you can pray to him in the midst of trouble and in the midst of darkness. And so take heart in that, believer in the Lord, no matter where it is you are today, whether joining us via live stream or here in this uh, service. If you're struggling, uh, here's a prayer for the struggler. If you're lost and confused, here's a prayer for the lost and the confused. And it's a prayer that all of us will need over the course of our life together in walking by faith. So let's look together, Psalm uh, 44. To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them, that is the people of Israel, you planted you afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm, and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust. Nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like a sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. The sound of the taunter and reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, 
would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we have just heard this, your word read in the presence of your people, maybe more importantly, in the presence of your Holy Spirit who abides with us and who now alone has the power to make this heart sing with the truth of this word, to make our hearts together collectively embrace the realities embedded within this word. And so we would call upon you to send that spirit and power now and accomplish your purposes as we seek to know you and walk according to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've probably heard the phrase coming-of-age stories. Some of you have probably read some quote-unquote coming-of-age stories. It's a shorthanded way to describe usually a story that begins with a child or maybe an adolescent who is growing up and you begin to see some of the formation of their life through experiences and trials that they experience and they develop into young adulthood and into adulthood. You kind of get a glimpse in coming-of-age stories about what makes a person or shapes a person uh, into an adult or what is important about the early stages of their life that unfolds in the direction of their life later. You might think of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain or maybe Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Um, Any of those kinds of stories and many others that we could appeal to are coming-of-age stories. We love those stories in part because they are stories that reflect back upon, for many of us, times that we remember when we were young. And we can kind of channel, as it were, through the pages of those stories or through the TV screen as those stories unfold, uh, pivotal points in our life where there was a turning point, maybe a crisis of sorts that entered into our life and we knew we needed to either choose this path and this path would be either away from God and would send us in one direction or this path and this would be toward God or it would be the, the right path and we're in the crucible of the struggle of what decision we're going to make. And maybe many of us in this room right now could look back over the course of our lives and Think to ourselves, I'm glad by God's grace I took this path. Or looking back, we go, I wished I had not taken such and such path. And we can see that we get to those proverbial crossroads. And the choices that we make in those moments have indelible impressions and effect upon the kind of people that we become, the kind of challenges that we face, and even the kind of fruit that's borne out over the course of our lives. In some ways, Psalm 44 is a bit of a coming-of-age story. It's a bit of a coming-of-age story for a nation, not so much an individual, but we might say for the people of Israel. 
Uh, you might note in some of the references that are, that are mentioned in those first three verses of the text that it's referring to the time where Joshua led the people of Israel across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. That season at the beginning of the book of Joshua is sort of surrounding some of the history in the first three verses. He uprooted the land of Canaan. He planted the people of Israel uh, in that land. This is the history that's being rejoiced in early on in that section. But, uh, but you'll remember in that history and in all of the points of history uh, throughout the people of Israel's lives, they're learning lessons They're learning about who God is. They're learning about how God works. They're learning about the consequences of their actions, both good and bad. And over the course, we see the nation in some ways growing up, becoming, as it were, their own, coming into their own. And as we look at Psalm 44, we're seeing them at some crisis point, a point where they remember a past, but they're having a painful present And they're crying upon God to do something that they know that only he can do. They're pleading with him for help. And you sense the pivotal nature, the urgency and the distress of this psalm, especially in its midsection all the way to the last. As we look at this psalm together and we think about it under the lines of coming of age or the maturing of a nation, the pivotal crisis points that give shape to the people that we become, I want to consider three points with you. I want us to think first around what it means for us to experience the family of faith. The family of faith. And then I want you to see secondly in this passage, the fight for faith. (laughs) The fight for faith. What it means to be a part of the family of faith. And then what it means to face the fight of faith over the course of our lives. And then lastly, I want you to see the ultimate focus of faith. So we're going to look at family, fight, and focus as we consider Psalm 44 Together, And I want to start with this, this family of faith because this psalm begins by remembering God's faithfulness in the past. It's really a beautiful opening. Oh God, we have, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. It's a really beautiful portrait of a, of, a, of a people, the sons of Korah here, representing the nation of Israel and saying, we remember the days when our Hebrew fathers and mothers took us by the campfire under the starlight of that ancient Near Eastern evenings and recounted to us the times where you brought the people of Israel out of Egypt with great signs and wonders, how you brought them through the wilderness and then they crossed the Jordan River and then you, you brought down the Canaanites and planted them. We remember those stories. They're remarkable stories of redemption. The the picture that's given to us here at the very beginning of this psalm is is a psalm that's reveling in God's faithfulness to his covenant people. That he had made promises through Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and confirmed again in Genesis 17. That he was going to take the, the, the seed of Abraham and he was going to plant it in a promised land. And they remember those promises and the fruition of those promises. And they're reveling in the reality of it. They're rehearsing it together. And they're teaching us about how the faith works in the family of God and how faith is nurtured and tended, and we might even say passed down from one generation to another. Notice their focus is on our fathers who have spoken to us the history of redemption. They've told us the story. 
This is beautiful because this is exactly what Moses told the people of Israel to do as they were entering into the land of Canaan. Do you remember Deuteronomy chapter 6? Moses is preaching and preparing the people of Israel. And he's saying to them, hey, when you get into the land of Canaan, you're going to be tempted to forget God. When you're drinking wine from vineyards you didn't plant and living in houses that you didn't build... Don't forget me. Remember my statutes. Remember my promises. And also there's going to come a time where a whole generation of children are going to be raised. And they're not going to know any of the signs and wonders. They're not going to know of this era of faithfulness. And so when your child comes to you and says, Dad, Mom, do we really have to go to church again? Right? Do we really have to obey God's commands? Do we have to go to the tabernacle or the temple, to put it in Old Testament language, and sacrifice again our best calf? Do you know how good that would taste if it was on our dinner, dining room table? We're going to give it to the Levites. I can't believe this. When you think of it in that context of the Old Testament people of Israel here, he says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to tell them the story. I want you to tell them about our God. That's the nature of the family of faith. We pass down the legacy of faith from one generation to the next. That's what it is that God has actually charged believing households, fathers and mothers, grandmothers and grandfathers to be about. We might say it's his ordinary means of transferring the promises of the covenant and faith from one generation to the next. In fact, if you look at this psalm and you realize what's actually taking place, you realize that the strategy worked. Who is writing Psalm 44? (laughs) Well, the next generation. (laughs) And notice what the next generation is saying. We're espousing the same truths as our fathers and our mothers about the Lord. Notice what they do. They update it in verses 4 through 8. You are my king, O God. Not just the king of my fathers. You're my king. You ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. This is a beautiful picture of holding fast to the faith that's passed down from fathers and mothers to children and even to grandchildren. Even, as the prophet Jeremiah puts it, to a thousand generations. Now I think this is really important because we live in a day and time where there are so many Uh, messages that are being peddled to the next generation about what is right and what is true. If parents and grandparents aren't vigilant to rehearse the redemption history and to talk through the truths of the gospel and to press them down, as it were, sharing their own soul with their children, the tendency for those promises and those stories and those in faith field embraces to happen are diminished. This is God's ordinary means. This is how he advances his kingdom. I was reading recently a short article by Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor of Christ's Covenant Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He was actually commenting on the recent Supreme Court decision regarding same-sex identity and transgenderism and and its relationship now to sports and other spheres and he was he was bemoaning the, the 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 verdict that had come down from the Supreme Court but he was not really making that the point he was only saying we have been fighting in a variety of different ways a cultural war 
as believers during the last several decades, depending on how one plots the course. And one of the things that he noted in that was to say maybe one strategy that we have underestimated in the midst of all of this is the importance of raising up a next generation. He said this may be something we can get behind as Bible-believing Christians. If you want to make an impact in the world, have children and disciple them like crazy. So he said, now that may sound, you know, a little old and, and, and dated. That's not, as, not exactly seeker sensitive in quite the way that we're used to in our current day and time. But it is actually the very ordinary biblical way. And it's part of what DeYoung is actually raising in the midst of this. Now, when you hear raising children and, and passing down the legacy, some of you in here may be saying to actually uh, yourself, well, nay, my children are walking with the Lord. I, I raised children and I, I did what I thought I was to do in passing down the faith and they didn't seemingly, apparently come to know the Lord and they're not walking with the Lord today. And the recognition is that's a very real reality. That many of us in a variety of ways are experiencing right now, even in the context of this room or those of you joining us via live stream. We don't have in the scriptures a kind of foolproof, no exclusion promise that if we walk in this path, our children will, true blue, become professing Christians in the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll walk faithfully with him. But we do have general principles. We have Proverbs, like Proverbs 22, which says, Train up a child in the way that he or she should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. There should be confidence among grandparents and and parents to train up their children with the hope and expectation that the general principles and encouragements given to us in the Word will come true for our children. And yet when they don't, let's remember what Proverbs 22 says. When they are old... They will not depart from it. Some of you may have children in their 20s or in their 30s or in their 40s or in their 50s. Listen, I turned 40 this year. It's not old. It used to be old in my mind. It's not old anymore. As I get older, I realize that 40 is not old. And, And so when they're old, they will not depart from it. Just remember, pray, seek the Lord's face. Call down as the psalmist do for God's faithfulness on your family. Some of you in here are saying to yourself, Nate, I'm not married. <laughs> I'm married and I can't have children. You're telling me to have children and raise children. I can't, I can't do that. That's not been in the providence of the Lord. Now, here's my encouragement to you, friends. This is the family of faith. Be a spiritual father and mother. That's what God's calling you to. He's he's saying there's someone in your sphere of influence that you can pour into. It may be a young person. It may be a Sunday school class. I don't care who it is. Be a disciple-making disciple as raising up the next generation. May the legacy of fatherhood not merely be blood DNA, but might it be by the Spirit of the living God. That's what we want. That's what we want. Be a spiritual father and mother. You see what's happening here in Psalm 44 is we're seeing the family of faith actually present itself from one generation to the other. And we see that as it's presented to us in the Scriptures, there's a second point that arises. Because as we nurture each other and disciple each other and challenge each other and grow in the faith together as a family, we're prepared to face the fight for faith. There's a fight in this passage. And the children 
of the next generation and the grandchildren of the next generation won't be ready for this fight if they're not building on the foundation of the truth and the realities of God's redemption that have gone before. And I want you to see in verses 9 to 22 in the text that we have two components to the fight for faith that's here in the text. And I'm going to say there's two problems here. There's a problem between what we believe, faith, what we have thought was right or true, and experience that's put, put to us in this passage. There's a problem at this juncture, we might say, a complicating or confusing factor between what God's revealed Himself in truth and the way we actually experience life. And then secondly, we see a problem between truth, what we know to be true, and what we don't have good explanations for, or mystery. All right, Both of those things are wrestled with here in the text. And the first of these is this, this idea between faith and experience. What, what do I mean here? Well, you've probably had the experience, or if you haven't, you will at some point, of believing something about God and then coming to realize later that your, your belief about who God was may not be wrong, but was woefully naive and inadequate. We might even go so far as to say incomplete. That your God, the way that you had understood Him, you know, was that He was a good God, and he was powerful and he was strong and he could take care of you. And then all of a sudden, you have a major injury that you're going to have to live with now the rest of your life. And you think to yourself, I thought he was a good God. I thought he loved me and I thought he was going to care for me. And now this experience is coming and I don't know what to do between those two things. My faith, what I believed in my experience, are meshing. They're mismatched. And in those moments, we're at, in a coming-of-age story... We're at the crisis. What am I going to do with that? Am I going to abandon my faith? Am I going to abandon the way? Or am I going to, going to rework, restructure, go deeper into and have a more profound understanding afterward of who this God is? That's really the wrestle here of Psalm 44. If you look at verses 9 and following. But yet you have rejected us. Notice what they've just said. And disgraced us. You've not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from our foe. Those who hate us have gotten our spoil. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter. You've scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. Now, if you look back at verses 5 to 8, they just said, We trampled our enemies under your name. We defeated the, uh, the pagan armies. And now you've just abandoned us. You've disgraced us. We don't know what's happened. We thought you were like this, and now we're experiencing you like this, and it's deeply unsettling to us. Notice how, notice how painful they express it in verses 13 to 16. The pagan nations have begun to mock them. You have made a taunt of, of us with our neighbors, derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. These, these believers in the Lord who have heard the great stories of old and have embraced them, have seen with their own eyes great redemption from God, are now experiencing Him as completely distant and doing something they have no category for. There's a, there's a problem between faith and experience. Now I want to pause here for just a second 
And I want to just note this because I think it'll encourage you, especially as all of us, if we, if we are, well, if we're, if we're being full of integrity in our Christian life, we've, we've come to these points and we'll come to these points again, should the Lord tarry where we're not making sense of the way in which God's revealed himself and how we're experiencing him in the moment and what's unfolding before us. But here's what I want you to see God in his kindness has done for you and for me. He has inscripturated that experience. He's inscripturated that experience. Now here's what's what's very important about that. When you're in the midst... Of crying out to God, God, I don't understand you. Why is it that you're disgracing us? Why is it that we are losing the battles that we are headed into when we used to be victorious about those battles? I don't understand you. I really want an answer from you. And you don't get an answer. God is saying, I know that you have that experience in following me. And I want to give you a prayer to pray when you're in that moment. Now, there's something wise about that because don't you see in this psalm, even if we just rush ahead to the end of the psalm, does the psalmist get the answer he's looking for? No. It just ends with a cry. Okay, There's There's not a nice bow at the end of Psalm 44 where we can go... Oh, right? I mean, just, you know, it just stops with this, this cry, which is, a, which is a, a word for us that many times in the midst of prayer, in the midst of the struggle, we're not going to get the answer. And actually, the answer may not be even available to us ever in the context of our here and now particular moments in life. And so the best thing we can do with the tension and the cry that's in our hearts is do what Psalm 44 does, and that is pray about it. Pray. Do you know what happens when we pray? Especially a kind of prayer like Psalm 44, is our hearts, as they wrestle with the Lord, the Lord with us begins to tame our hearts in the immensity and the majesty and the glory and the grace of who He is. And we slowly, like Job, like the Old Testament righteous sufferer, we slowly, like Job, begin to say, oh yeah, I had heard of you with my ears once, but now I've seen you with my eyes. I don't know clearly what I'm talking about when I complain because your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are way above my thoughts. There's no way that I can get into your mind and understand what's going on. These things are hidden from us. The things which are revealed are for us and for our children, but the things which are hidden are locked away in the wishes and the will of God. And in this experience here, they're struggling prayerfully between faith and experience, between truth and mystery. Now, why do I say truth and and mystery? Well, if you'll notice, you probably thought like me, well... I think I know probably what's going on with these folks. They've sinned and bad stuff is happening because we have that on record with the people of Israel in the Old Testament, right? Let's just go back to Joshua because that's what the whole section is kind of funneling from in terms of history. Do you you remember the Battle of Jericho? The Battle of Jericho where they just march around the wall seven times on that Sunday after watching once Each day of that week and the walls just fall down and they go in and take the city. It wasn't our bow. It wasn't our sword. It was the Lord God who gave us victory. But do you remember immediately following Jericho, there's this really unfortunate story of Achan 
where Achan, one of the soldiers out of the tribe of Judah, had taken some of the spoils from the warfare and had hid it back from his fam- with his family and was supposed to destroy it and didn't follow God's command. And what happened? The people of Israel went out to fight Ai and they were defeated. And Joshua fell down on the ground pleading with God for explanation. And God said, yep, I'll give you a window into what's going on. You've been unfaithful to the covenant. You have not obeyed my statutes. And it was discovered that Achan had sinned and had been unrepentant about it. Sometimes the things that happen to us have a very clear explanation. Right? Like if I had a friend who had a wreck. He was a young teenager, like me at the time. And he just thought it was a great idea to go down a road-closed road. Fast. With many obstacles. And he wrecked his vehicle. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say, how did we end up here? It was a series of bad decisions, right? It was a series of bad decisions that led to that consequence, to that outcome. Some of us can look over the course of our lives and say, yep, I got here and I can trace the path. It makes a lot of sense. When you look at Psalm 44, the people of God, the sons of Korah who are praying this psalm, you know what they're saying? We searched our hearts. We've looked over the course of our lives. We've taken inventory morally and spiritually. And I think we can say with integrity, we've not turned away from you, O Lord. We've not forsaken you. We have remained faithful to your covenant. Now, Some of you in here are probably saying, no, they haven't. They're not sinless. They're not not perfect. That's not what they're claiming. They're much more modest than that. They just said, we haven't forsaken you. We haven't gone and committed idolatry. Yeah, we've sinned in thought, word, and deed every week, but we're sacrificing to you. You see, every time actually you come to worship on Sunday morning, you are admitting that you need grace and have sinned this week. You realize we do that every week? Like everybody around you, you've got some skinny on them. They're sinners. They're really messed up people all around you in here. And I don't mean any personal offense to anyone particularly. Go ahead and include me in that group. We're all in that together. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we're acknowledging that in worship. See, you thought by coming to worship you were a really good person. When actually showing up at worship is just the admittance that you're a really bad person. And you really need God. Even as the people of Israel were worshiping and sacrificing to God day in and day out, you know what they were admitting? They're sinners. And they were in need. They said, as we look over the course of our lives, we're not harboring sin unrepentantly um, against you. And so in that sense, they are genuinely those who are the righteous, as it were, sufferers. Who can't get to the bottom as to why these difficulties are actually happening in their life. And so at the very end of this fight for faith, like to try to make sense of the difference between faith and experience and truth and mystery. Right at the very end, all they knew to do is to say, awake, O Lord. Are you, are you sleeping? It's, it's, the, it's the language of what we actually gain from um, Elijah with the false prophets at Mount Carmel. When, when, he, when he calls down fire from heaven and the living God actually falls on that fire and consumes the altar and everything around it. And the pagan gods can't get their God to do anything. And Elijah says, I wonder if your God's sleeping or maybe relieving himself or something like that. Maybe he's otherwise preoccupied. That's what Elijah says. 
And he's making fun. In a very real sense, the psalmist here is not saying, I genuinely believe you're asleep. He's saying, my experience of you right now is that you're not awake. You don't see what's going on. And in this prayer, he's fighting for an explanation. Now, what's interesting about all of this is that if you look at verse 22, it's a very unusual verse. This verse, if you were to look at it in the original, could be translated a couple of different ways. And some of our translations translate it a little bit differently. And so as we move from the fight for faith to the focus of faith, I think you see some light, shall we say, some, some help that's here in the text. Look at verse 22. It reads this way, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, we could translate that, because of you, we are killed all the day long. Sounds pretty accusatory, doesn't it? Because of you, we are killed all the day long. We're like sheep that's led to the slaughter. And in some ways, that goes along with the argument, doesn't it? Because they're saying, Lord, you're sovereign. We haven't done anything as far as we know to cause this to happen. And so, hello, this is on you. We need you to act. So it goes along with the verse. However, it also, and if you look at the grammatical construction in other places in the Hebrew, the ESV, I think, has it right here. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. Now, that's different. How is that different? But we'll notice what the psalmist is saying with that language there in verse 22. The psalmist is saying, we're understanding that our deaths and our sufferings And our defeats at the end of the day are for you. They're for your sake. We don't understand them. They're mysterious to us. We don't know how a defeat could actually work towards your plan. We don't know how a death could actually work towards a victory. But at the end of the day, yet for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. You're allowing this to take place. It's the same language at the end. Notice verse 26. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Buy us back is literally the language there. Buy us back. Remember earlier in the psalm, the psalmist said, you sold us for a trifle. (laughs) You sold us as if we were nothing. We were worthless. Redeem us. Buy us us back for your steadfast love. Now, here's what's interesting about that is if the psalmist is using that language for your sake, the psalmist is beginning to understand that God will use even the sufferings, the troubles, the defeats, the confusions, the loose ends, the things that are never tied up in our lives for God's sake, for His mission. God will use it. He's going to use it. Now... Let me tell you why I side with that translation of verse 22. Because it's the exact way that Paul translates it. Yes, that's right. The only verse in Psalm 44 that's used in the New Testament is verse 22. And you know where it's found? It's found in Romans chapter 8. What we might call the Mount Everest in the midst of the book of Romans. In Romans 8, it's lodged in that section where Paul actually says, What can separate us from the love of God? In Christ Jesus, our Lord, can sword, can famine, 
Can pestilence, can anything separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Indeed, he, Paul says, we are led like sheep to the slaughter every single day. Yet for your sake, O oh Lord, we are killed. Paul is speaking of the suffering that believers have in this life. And he's saying, even in the midst of our suffering, what's his next verse? We are more than conquerors through Christ and being in union with him. We're more than conquerors, though we're defeated every single day. Isn't that how it feels? Defeated every single day? Brought low every single day. In the midst of our defeat, we are more than conquerors, he says. Now, why is it that he can say that? Because you know where else we see the language led like sheep to the slaughter? Well, we see it in Isaiah 53. The suffering servant. Who was Jesus? But like a sheep that was led to the slaughter. Who was the perfect righteous sufferer? Now, listen here. You think your suffering doesn't make sense? His suffering doesn't make sense. Not from any vantage point from the world. He's, he's been perfect in every way, and yet the world hates him. He's, re, he's rejected in every way, yet he's come to love the world. The world is seeking to kill him, yet he's seeking to give the world life. It's the most befuddling, confusing, and troubling scenario imaginable. And Isaiah 53 says that this picture of the righteous sufferer is ultimately culminated in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And here's why this is so important. Do you see? On the cross, what did Jesus look like? What, what did the whole scenario look like? You have disgraced me before all of the world. You have put us up for shame. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what it looks like. It looks like utter defeat. It looks like utter defeat. It looks like Psalm 44. And yet on the third day, after he has been killed, crucified, buried, on the third day, if I can put it this way, he awakes. The God that looked like he was sleeping was never asleep. He was waiting to surprise you. Surprise you with his awakeness, with his life that he was coming to give you. He was waiting to show you his victory in the midst of defeat. When you begin to see the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection alongside the glory of the redemptive narrative that's happening here in Psalm 44, you begin to realize you can trust God with your confusing and troubling suffering that doesn't make any sense because the cross didn't make any sense. And it was the defeat that brought the greatest victory. Do you see Ultimately, Jesus is the answer to the end of Psalm 44, verse 26. Redeem us, O Lord, for the sake of your steadfast love. You see, you know something's going on in the psalmist's life at the end of that psalm. Why? Because the psalmist now is not concerned about himself. What is the psalmist concerned about? God and his love, his reputation and his promises. He's concerned about the redemption of God in love. Friends, as we are considering 
This coming of age story, this crisis in the the realm of the people of Israel that leads to the crisis that happened on Mount Calvary and then later the resurrection that happens from the tomb. The realization is every single day we have questions, don't we? Do you have questions about our world right now? Don't make any sense to you? Have you found yourself, whether verbalizing it or in your own mind, asking, what is God doing right here? Have you caught yourself being foolish and thinking something like, well, if I were... Don't say it. If I were in charge, if I was king for the day, I would do. His ways are so much higher than your ways. He was saving the people of Israel when he was allowing them to be defeated. In the midst of their darkness, he was bringing light. And friends, in the midst of ours, he will do the same. Our God is a God who snatches victory out of defeat. Wait on the Lord. He is steadfast and he is faithful. He will surely do it. Father in heaven, we would ask right now that you would you would brand this into our souls. You, you would that you would enliven our souls with a light that is greater than any light we've had previously. You would Well, that you would break false conceptions, naive conceptions of who you are. And and, and that you you would shatter them so that we can have deeper, more profound reality over what you've revealed in the Word. And walk according to a richer and deeper faith. Bring us to age so that we would put away childish things. And not reason and think like children anymore like those who are growing from one degree of glory to the next. Lord, let us see the beauty of this truth that you revealed to us in Psalm 44 and let it be to us the song of our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.